Hello, and welcome to another episode of Wes and Conversations about the Films of Wes Anderson. This is episode three. Episode three is called The Royal Tenon Buds. <laughs> Wes and is a proud member of the Smug Buds family of podcasts. I'm your host, Will, and I'm here with my co-host, Liz. Hi, Liz. Hey, Will. How are you doing? I was guessing that you were going to go um, the smug tenon buds. Well, I, I almost did, but last week was smug more. Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah, so yeah. I thought I would balance it out by having only the buds and yeah. not the smug in this one. A reasonable choice. I'm great. Thank you. Uh, it was my birthday on Friday. Yeah. Happy bir- belated birthday. I now seem like I'm two years older than you. Yes, for now, for, for, for a few briefly. months. Yeah. Um, my bed's here. I see. It rules. Nice. It was still a fucking hassle. Sure. <laughs> it was supposed to get here Monday and then didn't and went from having a estimated delivery date of Monday to no none, no delivery date. Perfect. I called FedEx to be like, when is this getting delivered? Because, which I normally wouldn't do, except again, it's this very big expensive thing. Right. Um, then I, uh, had to go to work oddly on Tuesday. I got a new work computer. Mm -hmm. And when I got home, Kenny, I, when I was there, Kenny texted me and was like, the bed's here. They left it downstairs again. I heard them talking about how they would not be bringing it upstairs and said, basically he heard the dude say, I'm taking this upstairs, my ass. (laughs) Uh, we then called to complain again and they have not called us back, but, um, once we got it up, Kenny had to get it upstairs by himself. She was like, I don't think I can get it upstairs by myself. And I was like, well, I got the queen up by myself. So I think you certainly can get the king up. Um, but yeah, we have it up. I have a new duvet. This is from my brother. It's white with these green like polka dots, which is dope. Lovely. Yeah, so I'm great. I'm like super great. I'm happy to hear it. How are you? Oh, I'm doing Okay. It's a Sunday. It's uh, September 27th. Uh, just today, I edited uh, the Rushmore episode, which mm-hmm. is now uh, up for people to listen to. So hypothetically, yeah. So hypothetically, people have heard that. So I can make a comment about it. Sure. So I have not re-listened to the whole thing yet because no. I didn't have time. Yep. Right. I, I didn't give you much time. Yeah. But I did listen to about 35 minutes of it. And the yeah. sonic joke you do oh. with the old business. Yeah. I well, laughed you set out- me up for it. <laughs> I, yeah. You still, though, you did it. I, I laughed out loud, unplugged my headphones, played it for Kenny, and we both laughed solidly for about oh, 30 seconds. Perfect. That's just <laughs> what I needed to hear. Um, while we're talking about audio. Yes. What, let me say a few things. Okay. First, I want to just let us off the hook. Because last week was not the last time that we will talk about Jason Schwartzman. Yes. And I just want it on the record that it is very hard to say the name Jason Schwartzman. Oh, you think so? Did I say it wrong? We both, I think both of us, more than we correctly said Jason Schwartzman, said Jason Schwartzman. (laughs) And I, 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 I encourage all of our listeners to take the 
say Jason Schwartzman correctly for two hours challenge <laughs> and see how well you do Yeah, um, pronouncing that difficult name. Also, I want to say uh, we've talked a little bit, a bit about uh, how it's autumn and these are autumn movies. Uh-huh. That's the reason why we are pumping in the bed track of crickets and or cicadas that you are definitely hearing in the background. You know, it's, it's so funny. Well, I can't hear it. When I, I listen to the podcast, I don't hear it. And I know it's coming from me. So I know that it's mm-hmm. there. I can't hear I, it. No, no. I'm inserting it. It's not coming from your end. It's a choice <laughs> that I'm making as the person who edits the audio of this podcast. And everything is done on purpose and for a reason. Mm-hmm. And because I want it that way. Yeah. So, f- for example, if you have to turn the volume up or down in the middle of the podcast, because sometimes we get quieter and other times we get louder, I've done that. That's on purpose. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's good. And it's, and it's a funny joke that I'm doing. Yes. You're very good at funny jokes, Will. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um. um I do, this isn't, I do have one comment to make before, I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about before we get into it. I have so much to say about this movie. Um, but, um, I did want to say that my mentee Auden, who I've mentioned more than once, mm-hmm. told me that they listen to this podcast every night before they go to sleep now. Yeah, that's nice. Um, they said pretty much every night that they are not, um, their partner comes to visit them every, you know, weekend or every other weekend or whatever, but the nights that he's not there they listen to us and that's honestly the highest compliment is yeah comforting enough to sleep too absolutely that's that's a beautiful sentiment and mm-hmm. i'm glad to hear it uh i have uh one item that i want to share with you before we get into uh the royal tenenbaums and uh it is i i'm going to send you a link Ooh, baby and so I guess I have to uh, put it in the Skype chat. That, yeah, that's a way. I'm ready. Okay. I see that you're typing. So this will be the first link in the show notes. So if you want to follow along yes. with what Liz is seeing, go ahead and click that first link in the show <laughs> notes. And what what do you see there, Liz? Oh, in the scene, it's the IMDb, Trivia for Rushmore. Mm-hmm. And it says... In the scene where Max meets Miss Cross, they discuss Latin, and Max says, quote, Sic transit gloria. Glory fades. The band Brand New would use this line as the title of their song, quote, Sic transit gloria, ellipses, glory fades, track two on their 2003 album, Deja en Tendu. And isn't that a funny coincidence that we were just talking about that in last <laughs> week's episode, and now... It, where it wasn't there before, it showed up on the trivia section of the IMDb page for that film, Rushmore. Amazing. Except it's not an amazing coincidence. It's an amazing achievement. Yeah, good job, by, Will. By us. By Will. You ca- Bless yeah, you well, for including me. Well, you came me. up with it. Okay, I guess you, that's you, true, yes. You, you connected those dots for me. I just mm-hmm. submitted it to IMDb. So <laughs> I've been... Prior to this, I, I've been speculating about what the process might be. Yeah. And today, today I, I bit the bullet and learned it. Um, you do submit it. You do, you know, as long as you have a, a login, you have to create like a profile mm-hmm. on their site, and then you can submit something. 
and then it doesn't go up automatically. It is reviewed, and if it's approved, then it goes up. I did all of this today. Within a couple of hours, it had been reviewed and approved. That's incredible. And it's there now. And I want to share with you the top tip for trivia submissions to IMDb. So oh, yes. When I go to the form to submit a, a trivia item, there are a few tips that appear. Mm-hmm. And the first of them is the trivia section is for interesting facts about the title and its production. It's is spelled I-T apostrophe S. <laughs> no. And then there's a comma and it says, it should be interesting to you and italics at least one other person. <laughs> which oh is God. which is such a funny thing to say about trivia. Yeah. That as a criteria. That's the minimum. It should interest you and at least one other person. And when I saw that, I thought, well, this is perfect because I have evidence <laughs> that exactly two people find this interesting and I am one of them. Yes. And I'm the other one. That's it was incredible. Like, it's like it was written just for this situation. <laughs> um, so. I, I do have, first off. I love this. I'm glad that it's there. I feel like we're really making our mark finally. Um, Yeah. I also want to say really quick that the one thing that I'm not so great about is I twisted my ankle on my birthday. (laughs) Yes. I was sorry to hear that. Uh, Will knows that I have a, and I probably mentioned this too, but I have a bad knee. I Mm. tore my ACL freshman year and then I tore my meniscus in half junior year. When I tore my meniscus in half, I read a poem that had gotten published in Rivercraft called In Waking. Will accidentally posted a picture of me reading this poem and accidentally said that it was titled In Walking, mm-hmm. which, again, I was on crutches when I read this poem. Yeah. Do you remember you were not the only person to do this? I vaguely remember. And also, I just want to point out real quick that when I wrote that caption, it was not a mere typographical error. I thought that was the title of the poem. Um. There was somebody from PenLive, um, which is like the local newspaper, for some reason, I don't know how, found out that I got this published in the literary magazine because it's like an on ca- I have no idea how. But right. later I was Googling myself and I saw an article where it said Elizabeth Deanna Morris read a uh, poem in walking, got published. Um, but I, uh, I bring this up partially because um, it's – better today than it was yesterday it's not as swollen but it's still tweaking and so i'm i can't sit exactly the way i normally do so i might be shifting around and i'm sorry if you hear that yeah no absolutely and while we're continuing to talk about things you might hear (laughs) i just want to say that because we are the movers and the shakers that we now clearly are you know we're writing imdb pages basically basically um that's the reason why, you know, I want the I want us to stay grounded and relatable to the listeners. And that's the reason why I now record the podcast in the exact center of my house where <laughs> the microphone will pick up everything that is happening. <laughs> and so you will hear our dog walking on the hard floors and you will hear uh, Dana 
you know, washing a dish, leaving the house to take the dog on a walk and coming back inside. And who knows, maybe you'll even hear a toilet flush or something. Oh, God. Oh, there's Angie now. Hi, Angie. Angie. All right. Should we get into it? I'm ready. We are here to talk about Wes Anderson's third feature film, The Royal Tenenbaums, Mm -hmm. from the year 2001. Mm -hmm. Liz. Yes. What is your history with this movie? So I think I saw this movie in college freshman year. So I think it was Mm -hmm. 2007 or really early 2008. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw it after The Life Aquatic, as we've discussed three million times. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I saw it. And then I think I've just seen it intermittently since then. It's probably the movie. It's probably the third most watched Wes Anderson movie of mine. Okay. I think if we're just going by most watched, Life Aquatic is number one, which would have been anyway, because I watched it every day in April in 2005 or whatever, 2006. But... um, Second is the Fantastic Mr. Fox, mm-hmm. and because I I like watching that movie, and I can also watch that movie with Elliot, so I've watched it the past couple of years too. And then third, I think is Royal Tenenbaums, which <laughs> oh, we'll get to something later that you're going to be like, and this is your third watched Wes mm-hmm. Anderson movie, and I'm be like, listen, we because mm. uh, there's something I missed, or just I just did a I did a misheard for mm. it. But okay. in a big way. Interesting. Um, so yeah, I've I've always liked this movie. Um, People always liked to compare me to Margot Tenenbaum, which I found annoying. <laughs> hmm. Because um, they'd be like, you're a writer. Hmm. And I'd be like, yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah, I would say that this is the movie that I, th- I discussed this last week, too. But this is the movie that feels 100% there for me. Out of right. the first the first trilogy, as we're calling it. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, this is completing the set, as we said last week, in addition to the point that I made about the size of the cast. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about Bottle Rocket as the movie where you could see the potential mm-hmm. for what we know of Wes Anderson's style and tropes, etc. And Rushmore, it was... You know, clearly Wes Anderson's calling card. It's identifiable as his style. However, mm-hmm. it is still, there are still some limitations on it, keeping it grounded to the quote unquote real world type of mm-hmm. Royal Tannenbaums is finally no holds barred. This is wall to wall. a Wes Anderson vision. Yes. This is, this is the, this is the complete package. We get color. We get the shots. We get the cast. Mm -hmm. We get the jokes. We get the visual, um, framing Mm -hmm. of, of not, instead of when I was saying the shots, I was speaking more specifically to the movement of the camera. Um, right. It's all here, baby. Nothing missing. It's and it's very clearly like you can recognize the the production design is is like everything is is very deliberate and consistent, right? Mm-hmm. It's all made you know cut from the same cloth. Yes. Rather than 
Bottle Rocket only having a little bit of that and Rushmore having sort of a blend of that consistency and, you know, other outside forces feeling more naturalistic, a little more organic. This is like a ship in a bottle. It's like totally contained, totally, you know, deliberately constructed every single piece. And it's a ship in a bottle, too, in the sense that that's the sort of shit that Wes Anderson's very into. <laughs> right. Miniatures, right? Yeah. Um, can I tell you that I solved the mystery? Uh, do tell. Did we talk about piranhas are a very tricky species on the yeah. podcast or just off air? I can't remember. No, very much on the podcast as okay. well. I found where it is. It's in this is it, movie. Is it in the chase scene? twice it's in this movie okay and i yelped the first time it's at 12 30 when uh chaz is doing the drill to get his kids out of the house yeah and it's again at 133 when um eli is just has just crashed his car into the Tenenbaum's house and is running. Right. And there, that's yes. the chase, I think you're That's what to. I meant by the chase scene, yeah. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it will happen again. I wouldn't be surprised either. Yeah. Because this I, was so in my brain. I was trying to see if it was listed anywhere because mm-hmm. the thing is, I'm fairly certain it's exactly the same. I'm fairly certain yeah. it is just that song. Right. But I do want to say that there's a possibility that it's not. Mm-hmm. And to that, I would like to say also <laughs> that I don't care because yeah. it's functioning the same way and it mm-hmm. sounds so similar. It's drums, like a drum fill, I guess, a series of drum right. fills that is indicating a very specific set of movements. Right. Um, yeah, I think I but I think it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's setting a, a rapid pace and, and a frantic tone. Yeah. I have seen this movie a few times. I don't really have any uh, version of a story of specifically when I had seen it. Mm-hmm. I just think I probably saw it for the first time in, I don't even know whether it was high school or college, but it must mm-hmm. have been one of the two. Yeah. And I have seen it probably two or three times since then. Also, as a note, I think that I, we were talking about like um, how Rushmore was sort of people's some of a lot of people's first movie. And I said that the Royal Tenenbaums was the only memory right. I do have of this. And I don't even remember who said this to me, but I remember saying that I like the life aquatic and somebody saying something about the Royal Tenenbaums and me being like, what's that? And they've been like, they were like, you have seen The Life Aquatic, but you don't know about the Royal Tenenbaums. And I was like, no, I don't. And that's definitely how I watched it. Right. Um, so, yeah, that that is the only origin piece I think worth mentioning is that other people knew about it. <laughs> yeah. And told me I should too. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Can I tell you my... I have two major criticisms of this. I have a major criticism and a minor criticism of this movie. Can I tell you the minor one really quick? Sure. The text in the books read like a script, and it drives me nuts. Right. So there's a framing device around this movie. The movie begins with a library book being checked out of the library. The book is called The Royal Tenenbaums. And I have to assume the person 
the hands that are checking the book out are Wes Anderson's. Could be. I don't know. Though I could not find this information anywhere. And uh, there is a narrator. And the narrator is Alec Baldwin. Yes. <laughs> and the uh, the book is a framing device in that uh, the movie is separated into chapters. Mm-hmm. And you know when a new chapter is beginning because you literally see a portion of a page from the book, you know, chapter one, chapter two. And you can read maybe like a few sentences Mm -hmm. of what would be, you know, the beginning of that chapter in the book. And you're saying it reads like a screenplay and not like a book. It's terrible. And I say that it's terrible because it's otherwise so beautiful. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. But the, the but the text will be like, um, you know, like there is a pile of clothes by the door, and then it'll be like so and so walks in and begins to speak, and it's like you could have written this, you could have written three sentences max, as if we were reading a novel, you know. Even a children's sure. novel. And instead it reads in a way that no, it, they're clearly stage directions. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I, and I just, I, I think it's sort of lazy for something that is otherwise so precise. I am not going to argue. I am just going to state that I have the opposite position. I, I will take the opposite position. And I will say it probably is literally from the screenplay. And I and I think that is good. Yeah, I figured you would take that position. <laughs> I think also because, and then we can stop talking about this, every other piece of text that we see in a Wes Anderson movie for the most part is actually true to what that text would be. So if we see a letter, mm-hmm. it looks and reads like a letter. Mm-hmm. If we see a magazine cover, it looks and reads like a magazine cover. So this also mm-hmm. seems like an exception. Anyway, books. Do you know the one book that is very explicitly referenced in this movie? Um, Not like no. referenced like you get to see the cover of it or something like that. But like there, he's like nodding his hat to a children's novel. No. So the first time I saw this movie, I was like, oh, my God. The Mixed Up Files of Miss Basil E. Frankweiler. Have you read this book? No, and I'm pretty sure you just made that up. I did not. I did not. And in fact, I have a quote. Um, So I was reading a book about, um, I was reading an article about this. So for a long time, by the way, I could not find anything about this being specifically a a, um, a, uh, reference that he was making. But I knew it had to be because it was so obvious. So... From the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler is the, the name, the actual complete full name. And it's a book about two kids that was written in 1968, I think. Uh, and these two kids are a brother and sister, and they live in a museum. They run away, and they live in a museum. Mm-hmm. And they sleep in one of the old beds at night. They take baths. In the fountain, which is cold. This is also where they get money. They just start stealing money from the fountain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like coins. Yes. 
And at the way that they get past the security guards at night is they go into the bathroom and sit on the toilet but keep the door slightly open, knowing that the person will walk through, not see any feet, not see any doors closed and leave. Mm-hmm. And this article I found was from the Smithsonian Magazine, and it's about the book. And there's some other movie that they made. There's like a really unknown movie that came out about this uh, book. Like um, an adaptation of the book? Or? Yeah, like an adaptation. Okay. Um, That I guess I had never heard of before. But then it also says, in the director's commentary for the Royal Tenenbaums, Wes Anderson said that the book inspired him to construct a mu- mini museum in a bank for Margot and Richie to run away to, which I also thought was an, a, a, an interesting detail. They're not actually in a museum to film those scenes. He made his own set and he made it in a bank. <laughs> right. Be- yes, because the alternative would be to use a real New York City museum. Yes. And that would go against part of what he's doing in this movie, which I want to talk about. Yes. Which is making a movie set in New York City, partially shot in New York City, that is uh, not relying on anything obviously recognizable about New York City. I read a trivia, I'm sure you did too, yes, that at this one is point what I wanted th- to talk about. When they're in Battery Park. Right. Do you want to say it? Yeah, they were filming in Battery Park and the Statue of Liberty, as it would be, was visible in the background. And so Wes Anderson positioned uh, Kumar and the camera so that Kumar was perfectly between the camera and the Statue of Liberty, thus blocking (laughs) our view of the Statue of Liberty because the point was to not put any of those famous landmarks in the yeah. movie. Yes. The Which yes, New York I, City w- was not the other main character. But here's the thing. In a in in a in a in a better way, it is. In yes, my opinion. absolutely. Yes. And 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 I this this may sound very pretentious, but I think I'm allowed to say this because I grew up in New York. Yes, absolutely. This movie feels like an insider's uh, version uh-huh. of depicting a, a story set in New York City. Whereas most times when I see New York City in a, in a TV show or mm-hmm. a movie, uh, they, they use those, you know, you will see those obvious landmarks. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I've never been there because I was never a tourist in New York City. Right. Yeah. Have you, have you ever seen or listened or know about the fact that there are no alleys in New York City? Mm-hmm. And, but everybody assumes that there are because everybody films things as if they're in alleys in New York City. And there's right. like one alley that's used in like every. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard about that alley on Blank Check recently, I think. Oh, really? I'm pretty yeah. sure this was a 99% Invisible episode that I heard about it on. But yeah, I think I about think, that a lot. I think on Blank Check, Griffin had a story about filming something in that alley because he's uh, an actor and, yeah. and, a, and a New York guy. Um, When did this movie come out? 2001, right? When in 2001? 
because I'm sure it was filmed pre 9-11, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, earlier in the year, I think, but uh, I'm Googling it now because I don't remember exactly. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums release date. Oh, no, I'm 100% wrong. Uh, it was a December release. Oh, wow. Okay. Because, uh, which in hindsight, I should have guessed that because uh, I guess I just had it in my head that the French Dispatch was supposed to come out in June of yeah. this year. So mm-hmm. so that put it in my head that these might be summer releases. But in fact, um, something we didn't talk about last week was, so we kept referring to Rushmore as a 1999 movie. Mm-hmm. It, was, it actually came out in December of 98. Oh. And I think it was supposed, at, at one time it was supposed to come out in like February 99. Mm-hmm. And then they saw the movie that they had on their hands and they were like, we're going to rush this out so people can see it in December and it'll be eligible for awards specifically. Specifically, they thought Bill Murray could, they could campaign Bill Murray for best supporting actor. Mm. And the outcome of that was that Bill Murray was nominated for a golden globe. Oh, good. uh, Okay. For, but didn't win and, and not for an Academy award. This movie, uh, The Royal Tannenbaums, uh, was nominated for its screenplay mm-hmm. for an Academy Award. And Gene Hackman uh, won uh, the Golden Globe. Oh, okay. For huh. uh, actor in a motion picture, comedy, or musical. Yeah. So It uh, is weird that this is Wes Anderson's only musical. um that would be interesting um can i talk about some of the tropes that i noticed in this movie yeah let me just get out one thing really quick yes go ahead go ahead when we were talking about the chapter pages i wanted Mm -hmm. to point out that i read somewhere or heard in one of the videos that i watched that the drawings you know each yeah uh that the all the drawings are done by wes anderson's brother who, ah. who we talked about last week because he did the the making of featurette that I love yeah. so much. Well, okay, so before I get into tropes, I do want to mention about Brothers really quick. Yeah. So this movie does still have all three Wilson brothers in it. Yes. Andrew Wilson plays, plays let's say, three different characters. Oh, that interesting. All, that all show up within five minutes of one another. I, I I thought it was two. So well, I, don't know I say plays loosely. That's why I said plays and characters sort of loosely. I was going to say that he appears twice in this film. He appears for, three times. Tell, tell me. And it all is within the scene of them being at the cemetery when they're visiting both the grandmother's grave and then also Ben Stiller's wife's grave. Yep. The first time is uh, when... The boys, Ari and Uzi, ask Margot how her hand got blown off or her mm. finger got blown off or okay. cut off. And she says, no, I'll tell you. Did you know I was adopted? And they said, no. And she was like, well, I was. And she was saying about how when she was, I think, 15 or 16, she went and she – 14 maybe. She went and saw her biological family. Right. And her finger gets chopped off by an axe. That farmer dude is Andrew Wilson. 
Oh, I didn't clock that at all. And if you, I also had never clocked it before, even having known that he shows up two other times. Mm. And when I watched it this time, it sound it just fucking sounds like him. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, I totally missed <laughs> he it. Wearing, he is wearing a lot of makeup, so he looks like old. I would say, mm. like mm-hmm. he looks older than, like he really is. Yeah. And then the second time is, but then very right after that, we get a flashback to when, um, Richie lost the championship because he margo had just gotten married and the two narrators there are andrew wilson and wes anderson right a lot of people think that it's jason schwartzman's voice yes but in fact it's wes anderson and they sort of sound alike yes and also people also thought it was owen wilson right um which would be weird because he has a pretty big part in the movie (laughs) yeah um and then of course wes anderson had to write this in somewhere which is that andrew wilson does have a bb stuck in his hand yes this i knew this i've known for years yes it's one of my favorite facts yes owen wilson specifically is the one that shot him by the way right when they were kids and Mm -hmm. so that the fact that this has happened to ben stiller's character in the movie they owen wilson and wes anderson who again wrote this movie like the others we've talked about um they wrote they wrote that into the movie because that that had happened to Owen's brother Andrew, thanks to Owen. So I knew I knew these things going into this um, watching of it, mm-hmm. um, having read a little bit more. But what I didn't realize until I watched it again today was that all of these things happen literally within five minutes of one another, which yeah. is so funny. Yeah, I had <laughs> I had not thought about that. That, that is funny. Um. So can I talk about tropes? Yeah, let's let's do some tropes. So first things, I mean, so there's a lot of things, of course, I'm not going to mention every one. Um, you know, we've got the text, we've got mm-hmm. the the font. Um, we've got the running out of money trope. Mm-hmm. We've got the living to go in a hotel trope. Yeah. Um, which I wrote, I wrote notes, I wrote Bill Murray and Rushmore, Bottle Rocket, I guess technically... <laughs> Yeah, the motel, yeah. And I said, uh, and later, um, Jason Schwartzman does this in Hotel Chevalier. Yep. Um, the dictating letters trope, which happened in Rushmore, happens mm-hmm. again here. Right. We have not yet reached my favorite dictated letter yet. That is in The Life Aquatic. Um, I also just wanted to note, I really liked how they, um, whenever they show a book or a magazine cover, because it seems like everybody in this in this movie is an author of some sort. Right. Um, I really liked how they did the sort of like pa- like offset tile yes. paneling of it. Yes, the layering. Yes, so that there's no background on which there's no visible background on which the book is sitting. You just see, yeah, yeah the the cover. Uh, yeah, I think that's a brilliant visual choice. I also want to say before you continue your list. Yes, because you said that like everyone's an author, and I just wanted to repeat something that I heard once that stuck with me, but I cannot remember where I heard it. Yeah. So I can't attribute this, but somewhere I read somebody say, or I heard somebody say on a podcast that with the Royal Tenenbaums, Wes Anderson created the best sandbox for Wes Anderson to play in. Mm-hmm. of all of his movies because all of the characters in 
its world wrote a book. <laughs> uh-huh. And it just jives with his like characterization you know with like the way that he writes people writes dialogue that like that they that they would be like a bunch of authors and Mm -hmm. like quote-unquote geniuses so that so they're very intelligent but sort of removed like they're intellectually intelligent but they have something lacking in their emotional intelligence right yes yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The other trope. So we also get a shot, which I feel like we don't really get in Rushmore as much, but we get it a lot in this movie and we'll get it a lot in upcoming movies, which is, I would say, like um, like a, a layering of um, where characters are located. Yeah, layered action. Yeah. So um, both in terms of like characters that are actively on screen and characters that aren't. And Mm -hmm. then also characters reacting that are just sort of in the background that you don't expect them to react. Right. So the two scenes I'm thinking of um, specifically in this movie are the scene where Henry asks Ethel to marry him. Pagoda's in the background. Yeah, visible through a window, I think. Yes, through a window. Yeah. And visibly reacts. And then later when Ethel is looking at the clipping that Eli has sent her. Mm-hmm. She's sitting at her desk, which is sort of closer. Mm-hmm. Margot's sitting at the window further away. Yeah. And then at the end of the scene, Bill Murray shows up and knocks on the window even further away. Right. And um, it, it, and create, it creates like a tableau, right? Yes. Of like, it's it's almost like there are multi, it, multiple sets. Yes. Like there's the foreground set and the background set. And the and the... There's like a there's a window or a portal to the background set in the foreground set. And I think also it does this thing that Wes Anderson's very good at, which is making very small spaces seem huge. Yeah. So he likes the idea of a small space because they're incredibly detailed. Right. But he yet arranges things where it just feels like everyone can fit. Yeah. Um and then what are the other tropes i wanted to mention um we get more of the shots where um that i brought up before where someone walks off camera and comes back i'm thinking Mm -hmm. specifically of when um royal tells ethel that he's dying and she walks off right and it's also weighted really oddly right i mean oddly not for wes anderson but for everyone else where there's like they're literally only taking up a third of the screen Right. There's nothing happening in the other third of the screen, two thirds of the screen. There's literally a tree very close to the camera. Right. And she walks completely off to the left and then walks completely back. Yeah. It's framed that way to give her room. Yes. To like have some distance to cross when she's going out and back into the shot. Also, do we get, did we talk about crash zooms? Is that what they're called? Yeah. The uh, the moment when Royal meets his grandkids. Bless you for and, knowing exactly the moment I'm thinking of. <laughs> and it's it's so memorable. Yes. When they're working out and then he uh, is uh, approaches a fence like on the other <laughs> end of the park or whatever. Yes. And there's a, yes, crash zoom like from where the kids are to zooming in on Royal. Uh-huh. And then there's 
the and then there's also the, the reverse yeah. yeah the reverse exactly yeah i think um, crash zoom is the is the right term for that the two other tropes that i have written down are people hiding behind trees uh-huh <laughs> which we get when henry's behind the trees with his groceries yes and we've gotten that before with um I guess more loosely with Owen Wilson and Bottle Rocket with his binoculars, but then more specifically with Bill Murray and Rushmore when he's creeping on Miss Cross's art class. And also not to mention the scene in Rushmore where all the kids uh, throw what might be rocks or just pine cones at at Max. Mm -hmm. Remember, it's just a shot of trees and then... A kid, one kid comes out from behind each tree simultaneously. So there's yeah. like suddenly a mob uh, attacking him. Um, the other thing that we get in this movie that I wanted to bring up is we get color, which I feel like I talked about how the color was lacking pretty seriously. Um, and yeah, some of the color we, that we get specifically comes up again, which is that we get this pink green combo, um, mm-hmm. which is. It, I mean, it comes up in a couple places. Pagoda's pants are this pink, and I would describe this describe this pink as tea berry pink. This is the color mm-hmm. of my favorite ice cream, which is a lush pink, but it's not hot or bright by any standard, mm-hmm. but it's also not pale. Right. And then when they actually get ice cream, um, uh, when Margot and Royal get ice cream, there's the pink and green of the, and gold of that restaurant that they're in. Right. And those colors come up very, very specifically in, do you know what I'm thinking of? No. I'm test you. Grand Budapest. Ah, okay, yeah. Like those those cake boxes are that same color. Right, yes. I, the, I would recognize the pink, yes. Um, so those are the those are the tropes I noticed that he's, that are either haven't yeah. shown up before or are showing up again, but like perhaps more definitively. Your observations about the colors are very interesting to me because... I was going to observe that in relation to when we've spoken before about how, you know, once the Wes Anderson style is fully realized, then the movie has a distinct color palette to, Mm -hmm. you know, the entire movie. We talked about how fantastic Mr. Fox is so orange. I was going to say that this movie is highly beige. Yes, this movie is highly beige. You're correct. There's a lot of beige. I'm mainly referring to the costumes. So many. And Wes Anderson loves a beige-ass fucking suit. Right. Like, he wears... When I think of Wes Anderson, I see him in a beige suit. Right. And nothing else. Right. The sort of... Yes, the sort of suit that a a president would be mocked for wearing. Mm Mm-hmm. Remember when that was our problem, Will? (laughs) That was our problem. You and me. That was the beginning and the end of our problems. <laughs> um, what was I going to say about beige? Oh, oh the costumes. Um, what's What's important uh, uh, to recognize about the costumes in this movie is, of course, um, that everybody wears the same thing all the time, right? Yes. That that they wear a lot of nineteen seventies clothes. That they don't change their clothes, mm-hmm. even though the movie spans like weeks, mm-hmm. and eventually even longer than that. If you you know include the final the time yeah. from like, like the epilogue t- 
to the rest like of Ethel it. Ethel has those pantsuits but in different colors, but it's the exact same pantsuit. Or it's right. not a pantsuit. It's a skirt suit, but yeah. it's got a blazer. Yeah. So I'm not pointing out anything original or that I came up with myself. I'm just saying, just the same way that before I said, like, it's the perfect sandbox because everyone's an author. Yeah. I'm just re- I'm just repeating something that I've read or heard because I think it, it bears repeating that they wear the same clothes day in and day out and they are these 70s duds and that is a visual metaphor for their arrested development right i do have one comment about this though yeah go ahead which is that ben stiller doesn't (laughs) what are you are are you referring to what are you referring to so when ben stiller is a child Mm mm-hmm I'm trying to figure out, he wears suits. Yeah. And this is actually something that always confused me as a, not as a kid. I, <laughs> it always confused me, not confused me like, I didn't know what was happening. I would misremember what was happening mm-hmm. because um, I, assu- I I would know that Chaz uh, was the businessman. Right. And I knew that Richie played tennis. Right. But as adults, Chaz is wearing tracksuits. Right. And Richie is wearing his tennis band still, but he's wearing a suit suit. Right. Or at least a blazer. Yes. And I would, so I would get them confused as to who they were. <laughs> right. Whereas, you know, Margot's always wearing some iteration of a dress and her fur coat. Um, and every everyone else's yeah pretty much in the suits of some sort yeah right there are variations on formal wear and the yeah. only thing i guess i could sort of i guess see with that is maybe it's referencing at least with ben stiller's character with chaz it definitely seems like that's a product of the trauma he's experienced right so so i did i did read Probably in the IMDb trivia, because I don't know where else I would have read it, that Ben Stiller asked Wes Anderson, why do they wear these red tracksuits? And and according to what I read, Wes Anderson's response for Ben Stiller Mm -hmm. was they they wear red because of his paranoia about disaster. Mm -hmm. And it's for in case of emergency that it would they can just run that well and it would make them like easy to spot yeah 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 in in an emergency scenario Mm -hmm. and then also separately from that wes anderson has said publicly he just always pictured the character in a red tracksuit and 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 that that and that that explanation was was just for ben stiller's benefit because ben stiller wanted a reason for you for know, why he'd be behind, yeah. for the character. Yeah. I do think there's something to be said for it is f- perhaps funnier or more memorable or it just sticks in your brain more seeing uh his two sons. Yes. And him mm-hmm. dressed the same way and the way they're dressed is the red tracksuit. Yeah. As opposed to the alternative, 
suppose that they were all dressed the same and the way they dressed was... In suits. Oh, yeah, like a business suit. Yeah, absolutely. And then you wouldn't have like all the working out that they do and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the outfit wouldn't be appropriate. They would have to change. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think that that's an, an interesting and important thing because cu- I think uniforms, let's say, yes, will become important in other movies as well. Right. I, I, it's funny you use the word uniform because just today I was watching a few little interview clips and so the interviewer was asking Luke Wilson about his experience and he said something about like, yeah, you know, where, where, you know, characters wear the same thing in, in every scene. And, and, you know, it felt like I was, you know, back in school, you know, f- like putting on a uniform uh, yeah. for, for, you know, to go to work. Um, but uh, the, the, uh, yeah, that was an interesting observation you had about the sort of confusion of those two characters and the way that their clothing codes them. I want to talk at least about the beginning of the plot of this movie. We yes, so, go ahead. Fa- so far, not I don't mean so far in this conversation. I mean so far in the season of the podcast. Mm-hmm. We haven't spent a lot of time going through what happens in the movie in like yes. a chronological coverage yes. of the plot because these are not very plot heavy movies. They're mostly mm-hmm. character driven movies. Um, there are various, you know, montages and vignettes. And but I wanted to at least spend a moment talking about inciting incident mm-hmm. because. To, to the extent that you could summarize the plot of this movie, mm-hmm. I was I was going over it in my head and thinking to myself, okay, well, there's one clear inciting incident, which is that Henry Sherman asks uh, Ethel to marry him, mm-hmm. which then sets off Pagoda telling Royal and Royal interfering. That's yes. That's when and why. Royal starts to live the lie that he's dying mm-hmm. and and insert himself into their lives. Mm-hmm. However, that do, that has nothing to do with another p- event in the plot, mm-hmm. which is that Chaz moves home. Yes. Which is just kind of another separate inciting incident uh-huh because it it so it's because it's because royal says that he's dying that richie comes home mm-hmm. but it's because Chaz coincidentally mm-hmm. separately went home that margot goes home yeah because she's like and that's one of my favorite scenes yes why is he allowed to do that right well i think he's depressed I'm depressed. Right. Cut. Cut. Walking yes. out of the house. <laughs> Great cut. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, just an observation about how, like, for a moment, I thought I had a firm grasp on how this movie was plotted mm-hmm. because I understood the inciting incident as the marriage proposal. Yes. And then... I recognize, oh, wait, it's actually 
not as clean as that. Yeah. Because that has nothing to do with Chaz moving home. And I think it's also worth noting that that's, you know, riled up Royal or whatever. But he's just been kicked out of the place he's been living. Right. That happens before. That's true, too. And so it feels it feels disingenuous that he's so upset about Henry. That's a good point. Yeah, I wasn't really but considering that too much. But I will say... Um, it feels disingenuous on his own. It feels more disingenuous knowing that he's homeless. <laughs> yeah. But it also feels perfectly within his character, which is to say men like Royal Tenenbaum feel like they own the people in their lives and they fall apart when they realize they don't anymore. Right. Yes. I, I guess, okay, so in my reading of the movie, which... I don't mean to be contradictory to what you just laid out. Mm-hmm. I, I'm speaking about like the limitations of the way that I watched this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking of what he does mostly in terms of the competition between mm-hmm. Royal and Henry Sherman. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I'm thinking... If there was a reason why I was neglecting the fact that he simultaneously got kicked out of where he was living and he was homeless. Yeah. I maybe perhaps subconsciously sort of wrote that off as a non-issue because I have the understanding that this character is a sort of con man. Mm-hmm. who is going to skate through life and land on his feet. And I never felt like he was in any danger of, of like, being homeless. Yeah. Of, of being homeless or like, yeah, like not having, uh, you know, security. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely, I feel, I feel like I, I want to say that I agree with you. I was never worried about that either. Part of the reason I was not worried about that was because I knew that he had all of these other family members that he hadn't sort of tapped into for a while and that he knew that he was going to be able to figure out a way to manipulate them into letting him back in, which he did. Right. Um, I do want to talk to you about <clears throat> how I think an interesting thrust, and this isn't a, a single plot line as we've discussed, but... I think that it's important to think about the fact that all of these characters aren't just coming home. They want to be home. Mm-hmm. And for for Margot, that's because she's incredibly depressed because she uh, is in a loveless marriage and having an affair, which we'll talk about. And then uh, for um, Ben Stiller's character, it's because he is just so depressed because his wife has died and mm-hmm. he is losing his mind and he knows that he can't really take care of himself the way that he wants, even right. if he, even if it's only on a subconscious level. Richie wants to come home because he's been told that his father's dying, but we know that he's also really hitting a breaking point about his feelings for Margot because mm-hmm. he's written that letter before to Eli before he comes home because of his father. Right. And, um, Ethel's like there for it. I I think that 
So my my best performance in this is Angelica Houston. Okay. Who I love. Yeah. Um, And I love her in The Life Aquatic too. But I think part of the reason I love her so much in this movie is because she plays like just the opposite person. Mm-hmm. And I love her because she feels like, I don't, I guess like the form of mother to me. Mm. Where she's just very measured. She's not, I guess she's like a little bit deadpan, but like she's very measured. Mm-hmm. She takes everything her children says in stride. She knows that when her children are having ups and downs, she doesn't really react, which I think is actually good parenting because it lets kids not have as much power over you mm-hmm. as they could otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but also when her children want to come home, she doesn't bat an eyelash. Yeah. Um, she doesn't say, you know, I don't think she's obsessive about keeping them home, which I think is a problem some parents have. But she is just like, yeah, that's what it's here for. It's for you to come home to. Right. All of your things are still in their places. Yes. So when she's having her bridge club and Ben Stiller walks in, she doesn't even get out of her seat at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read that as her being like, okay, he's here. I don't really have a problem with that, but I, I'm curious about why. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Uh, that that makes sense to me, the way you laid it out. Um, I agree uh, Angelica Houston is excellent. Now I would like to talk about my favorite performance and specifically my criteria for choosing my favorite performance. Mm-hmm. My opinion is that there is not one clear superstar in this movie because mm-hmm. the it, because it is a large ensemble and the whole cast is incredible. Yeah, I and, can go along with that for the most part. Yeah. And they all do their jobs successfully. Mm-hmm. And it is hard for me to pick a favorite. And so I decided to pick a favorite. I would do a little thought experiment. And I tried mm-hmm. to decide for myself whose performance is the linchpin of the movie in, in such a way that if they did fail mm-hmm. in their performance of that character, it would hurt the movie the most. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. So, for example, mm-hmm. going through the thought experiment, I would ask if Ben Stiller was not great as mm-hmm. Chaz, would that ruin the movie? I would argue no. Yeah. It would it would make it an inferior movie, but but yes. the movie would still yeah, it, exist. it would it would still yeah. exist. It would still stand up and and it would still have successful elements to it. Mm-hmm. So, I came to the conclusion that the character who who has the the most weight of the movie on their shoulders, mm-hmm. and therefore the, the the performance that that is the is the most. Uh, uh, the the, the the most is demanded mm-hmm. of of that performance is is Gwyneth Paltrow as Margot Tenenbaum. Mm-hmm. 
I think of all the characters, you're you are you are making a face and making noises like I've wandered into a trap. <laughs> <laughs> no, keep talking, keep talking. Okay, I think you're going to tell me that there's a that there's a problem with this in your mind. I think Gwyneth Paltrow kind of sucks in this movie. Okay, I think <laughs> that I'm wrong. Well, okay. So, so here's the I can th- tell you why I can tell you why very specifically, but and I know that this is an unpopular opinion, but So, let me just wrap up by saying to be clear, mm-hmm. I I had I had to I had to come up with this justification for this. Yes, of course. Because there was no one clear you know, above you know, this one above all the others, I gravitate towards this performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the cast is, in my opinion, they're firing on all cylinders. Everyone's successful. I think the character of Margot Tenenbaum, as written, it it's so important that 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 character be both human, mm-hmm. meaning relatable meaning seems real Mm -hmm. and also sort of mythical Mm -hmm. and 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 believable as like you know when when she gets off the bus and it's in slow motion and and these days is playing Mm -hmm. you have to feel like oh okay i completely understand why Luke Wilson's life was ruined. Yeah. By this person being with someone else. Mm-hmm. I think if if you didn't if the audience didn't buy into that, the whole I think the whole movie is is out the window. I think you yes. would I think you would just We have off. to believe that there's this step sibling incestuous, which is not really incestuous, but is societally, if Taboo. not biologically taboo that um that it's not gross to us right we have to believe that it's not gross that's a huge ask yeah it seems unlikely yeah and uh i think the the whole i think you would just write off the whole movie Mm -hmm. you know all the stuff about the other characters you know it would just uh it would all come crumbling down if that center didn't hold. Mm-hmm. And I think that center is Gwyneth Paltrow pulling off that high wire act mm-hmm. of, of playing Margot. So I I just want to say that I think that the character of Margot, mm-hmm. including her children actress. Yeah. So, so both, you know, both actresses is really yeah. iconic. Yes. I think it's visually very iconic. Right. And I also think that visually Gwyneth Paltrow fills the space in a way that is meaningful. And Mm -hmm. that is acting too. That's also partially the way Wes Anderson has arranged her body in the shot. Mm -hmm. I think that her line delivery, there's this deadpan line delivery that Wes Anderson characters have some of the time. Yeah. That I feel like Gwyneth Paltrow sounds like she not all the time but some of the time it sounds like she's doing an impression of someone doing the deadpan Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah 
And as I was watching it today, I was like, the parts where she is arguably the most active, which would be the parts where she's speaking. Yeah. Are the least convincing to me. Okay. And those are the parts that rely the least on everything that Wes Anderson has set up. Mm -hmm. I know that this is unpopular. I don't think that you're wrong. And I also think that in this, in the way you've described it. And I also think again, that the way that she, the way that that character fills the space and is set up and all of that is good. It's like literally just her line delivery that I'm speaking of. Yeah. (laughs) And her line delivery, not even all the time. Like that scene specifically where she's in the bathtub, like anytime she's talking to her mother, I think it's actually quite perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, Like the line when she's in the bathtub, you know, she immediately reverts to, you know, we talk, I've mentioned before, like the idea of children being raised up and adults being pulled down. Yeah. Um, You know, she immediately just reverts to, well, that's not fair, mother. Yeah. Um, And I think that line delivery is great. We talked last episode about the, um, (laughs) how long have you been smoking? 22 years. Well, I think you should quit. That interaction is perfect. It's great. Um, But some of the other line delivery, she just sounds like she's sort of speaking in a lower register without emotion. Yeah. I get where you're coming from. Um, I, 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 I can see what you're seeing. My opinion uh, related to this is that on that sort of, you know, how you deliver the dialogue sort of level. Yeah. I think the person who is the least in sync with the vibe of this movie. Yeah. Is Ben Stiller. I would. I actually have a note about that as well. I think. The, the, I think for the, the part most part, he's quite good. Oh yes, I I think so too. For the most part, but he 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 feels like he's kind of chafing a little bit against the the Wes Anderson world. The part the at the end where he pops his head out on the garbage truck. Yes. I wrote this. Feels like a Ben Stiller movie. Not like a Wes Anderson movie. It feels like the beginning scene of Zoolander. <laughs> what I wanted to note about that shot is that when you when you don't know what's going to happen, that Ben Stiller is going to pop up, that's quite yeah. charming. And it's like yes. a oh, memorable, it's so charming. memorable yeah. shot. When I noticed, because I knew that that was going to happen, I noticed, okay, if you're looking for it, you could actually see that he is back there. Oh, Bef- I, I couldn't even see it today when I was watching You can it. like, you though. can kind of see part yeah. of his hair behind Gene Hackman's head. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. you just thought, and that just kind of made me think like, oh, maybe because this is on the back of a garbage truck that this shot was really hard to get. And so they couldn't get a yeah. better version of it. Um, yeah, but I think I, I agree with you there too, that he's definitely like, um, he's Ben Stiller in the movie. And I mean, I think it, it is, Ben Stiller doesn't show up again in a Wes Anderson movie. No. Neither uh, does Gwyneth Paltrow. I think, but to to reiterate and to summarize, I think everyone does their job successfully. Yes. To to varying degrees of success. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just call out one other person in particular, you know, who I think does a great job 
and just fits in perfectly with the vibe and with the whole aesthetic and with the line mm-hmm. delivery uh, is Danny Glover. Oh, Danny Glover's incredible in this movie. He's perfect. So he's so adorable. Yes. He's so um, And that line, that line at the end when Royal goes, I finally figured out why you like him so much. He's everything I'm not. Right. Is, I think, also a really good line because in some ways, Danny Glover and Gene Hackman are the two sides of the Wes Anderson coin mm-hmm. in their, in terms of their like aesthetic and their sensibilities. Right. Yeah. In terms of their like, their moral code or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, it's like Danny Glover, he has more to do than to just be like really cute and mm-hmm. like the perfect guy who she should end up with. He also has to like, you know, confront Royal and confront the family with the truth. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it, 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 it's, it's complicated and it's like a rich character. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have something you want to talk about next? Because I have something I want to talk about next. Is it your major criticism? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about that. This movie is like probably the most racist one. (laughs) Okay. And because of a couple of things. One is, and I mean, I think that this was, when I say intentional, I think Wes Anderson's always intentional. I think sometimes Wes Anderson is there for the aesthetic and is sort of unseeing to the fact that things are offensive. Mm-hmm. I think it's intentional that he makes Gene Hackman's character racist as shit <laughs> towards yeah. Henry. Right. But I still feel like it's um, not like the first time he sees him, he says, lay it on me. Yeah. You want to talk some jive? Yeah. Yeah. But I just feel like it, that part could be addressed better, especially because the way that other cultures that aren't white people are treated in this movie is that they're all it's it's a very I, I described it as a very National Geographic aesthetic in my notes, which at one point when, in fact, Henry is in Ethelene's office, she has if they're not actual National Geographics, they're very clearly supposed to be. National Geographics, which is a right. whole shelf of yellow, yellow, uh, uh what's the spined? I want to say stemmed, <laughs> yellow spined magazines. Yeah. Um, and which is that like other cultures are like something that white intellectuals study and talk about. Yeah. And, um, sometimes make up their own histories about, which is what Eli Cash is doing. <laughs> And then you have, on top of this, Eli doing mescaline, which I was like, what is mescaline again? And it's peyote. And then the place that, and he's writing, he's like a, you know, very much into this like cowboy and Indian aesthetic, which I I use those words as a very specific sort of genre. Jean. Jean. To, to quote Alex Trebek. Yes. Um, but then also, like, the fact that he goes to, a, like, a North Dakota Indian Preserve Rehab Center is, mm-hmm. like, yeah. not great. <laughs> because it's so it's so played for laugh, laughs, and it's especially, I guess, offensive to me knowing that, like, 
the you know the native american and indigenous population which you know as white people we have historically fucked um and just murdered and there's been a genocide Th- those populations have higher rates of alcoholism so like having him go to the having him be it's like he's gentrifying the fucking native american rehab center i just i just feel like i get it like i get why wes anderson did it but i just feel like he didn't really and then the fucking cab company yeah it's it's a 70s thing is that a but that's not a real cab company gypsy cabs not that i could find i googled it is it a real is it a real cab company you think that gypsy cabs are made up by wes anderson I, are they not? I Googled it to see if they were a real cab company and nothing came up except a restaurant in Augustine, Florida. Okay. I'm going to Google it right now, but I'm pretty confident that I have heard the and term. And you live there, so maybe you've seen them. I mean, I was born in 1990. <laughs> no, it's not a real cab company. It's a real, okay. it's a real term mm. that as a kind of joke he's using as a company name. Okay. Gypsy, this is the information I did not have. Gypsy cab is mm-hmm. a term for an illegal taxi cab. Okay. Which is why all of the cabs look like beat to shit. This is this is from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Illegal taxi cabs, sometimes known as pirate taxis or gypsy cabs, are taxi cabs mm-hmm. and other for hire vehicles that are not duly licensed or permitted by the jurisdiction in which they operate. So here's my take on that, which is that, again, this feels like very, this is like the sort of problem that Wes Anderson falls into, right? Wes Anderson's making a joke, but he's using a slur. Yeah. That is a slur for the Roma people. They don't like it. It's a weird thing in America because there aren't that many Roma people in America. And so we're using this term that like is offensive, but we just, don't really run into people <laughs> to be offended by it very often. Yeah, which all the, which which explains why use of it has been so widespread. Be- yes, because there has not there there is a limited understanding. There's there's a limited understanding today in 2020, mm-hmm. let alone 20 years ago when this movie was made. Mm-hmm. That 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 anyone would consider that a slur, and I understand that, but it I feel like that in particular is just compounding all of the other things that I've mentioned. Here, here's like the fact that there are paintings of Native Americans in Angelica Houston's desk, but they're seen as like historical artifacts, not like real people until. You get like Owen Wilson on the preserve or whatever. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, it had to be said. Yes. Oh, one more thing about, about also Eli Cash. Did you notice the weird drawing of underwear that's on his wall? Yeah. Do you know anything? Is there no. any history to that that you're okay? No, I don't know anything about it's that. It's so weird. And I don't know if it's just a visual joke. It seems like it might just be a visual joke because it's directly next to an enormous painting. Yes. And then it's this tiny, just barely visible, like, drawing of men's underwear. Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking. 
when they designed <laughs> when they made that set design choice. Okay, so Royal is racist. Yes. We understand for a lot of reasons mm-hmm. that Royal is a bad guy. Yes. So I don't have a I don't have a problem with it. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have a problem with it unless I thought that the movie's perspective was that he was good or that the story is meant to glorify him mm-hmm. or that in an uncomplicated way we he, he is supposed to be forgivable mm-hmm. or redeemable and what i would say is that is not my reading of the movie or my understanding of the movie mm-hmm. my understanding is i have a high tolerance for complicated characters who Mm -hmm. say and do bad things, but also they have attractive qualities or Mm -hmm. or likable qualities or or sympathetic qualities. Mm -hmm. And I think that the movie is very clear about the sins that he's committed, Mm -hmm. but not very clear about how, but what our relationship to him is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I think a story that just plainly made it clear that this is a villain to be hated would would be a boring sort of pointless story. Yeah. I guess my my point with the racism is like the thing I'm thinking of specifically is of course that scene in the kitchen. Right. And part of the problem is that that I have with it is that no one else is there to witness him being racist. So Henry is bearing the brunt of it. Henry, not Harry. Henry is bearing the brunt of it. And then he basically is racist to get Henry riled up. Right. And then that breaks him and he starts yelling because he's dealing with this dude. And then Ethelene comes in and it's that night that Ethelene's like, I'm not going to come out with you tonight. Right. Yeah. And so I just wish that there was a way that someone that wasn't the person of color could have called out him. Okay. So, so you're just, I understand. Like I want Ethel to come in and also be mad at Royal and she doesn't seem to be. I understand the desire for that. I, I would categorize that as a, as a desire for like, Oh, I feel so sad when this character dies. I wish it didn't have to happen in this story. Like uh-huh. you're 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 describing I'm 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 I, I am I am well aware that I am now falling into 
the trap of sounding very condescending. <laughs> and I apologize <laughs> for my tone. I apologize for my tone. It's very mansplainy. I'm sorry. Yes. But you are describing the text as written and the subtext as intended. Mm -hmm. It is, char it is char purposeful characterization that this is something that Royal wouldn't do unless they were alone. Mm -hmm. That he is cowardly in that he pretends that he didn't call Henry Coltrane when mm -hmm. Henry confronts him about calling him Coltrane. Mm -hmm. And we and we understand that he that Royal has the exact ulterior motive that you described him having. Mm -hmm. And he's successful and and it works. However, it 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 works for like one night. He he doesn't win in the end. For sure. Like he's not successful. Now, does he get his comeuppance for that specific interaction? No. But also, like, you said that like no one else is present to witness it. Mm-hmm. But like we are. So, and so, we, so we we shame him like yeah the the camera is there and the audience is there and we have the understanding of what he's doing that it's bad and mm -hmm. why he's doing it and and so we we bring that that mor morality to it that that sort of sep that sort of separates right and wrong um, and it would be, it would be, it is uncomfortable mm -hmm. because it's an, it's an uncomfortable situation in the mm -hmm. same way that seeing the word gypsy used flippantly mm -hmm. in 2020, whenever it was from is uncomfortable yeah. for us in mm -hmm. this context, but it's not necessarily wrong in in so, its context. So the thing I will say, and then we can move on, is that, so that I can get the last word, um, is that, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I was, that was a joke, is yeah. that earlier you said like, it doesn't bother you because it's a movie and so you know it's constructed. And I guess my point is, is that if it is constructed, um, that... I don't think it's unreasonable for me to say I wish he would have done a bit of a more explicit job here because there are enough people that are just racist that or or mildly uh, or, you know, are are, are um, complicit and don't feel one way or the other about it that will not read the tones that you're saying here that might see him as a complicated character, but maybe this is not a systemic flaw and that uh, that when sometimes when characters die, it's right for us to be critical of them and be sad about it if there wasn't good meaning to it. And I'm not saying that there's not good meaning to this scene as you've just laboriously described, but I am saying that I don't think it's unreasonable to, 
to say, hey, I wish that this was a little bit more explicit considering he does these other things in the movie that are also not really dealt with in the best way. Yeah, it's not unreasonable. And I wouldn't characterize it as unreasonable. And and I don't want to give that impression. Um, I don't, yeah. Uh, I think, I think your, your response is perfectly reasonable. Um, you're making that face again. Like, oh, I just love you. You're making the trap face. Like, no, no, you, no. You I can't. have nothing else to say here. Um, I would say, uh, that you could swing in two different directions. Mm-hmm. The, the move that I'm saying, what I mean is, the the movie and and the writing of the movie yeah. could swing in 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 one of two different directions where right now it's in this middle ground which is uncomfortable mm-hmm. but but it's complicated and therefore it's rich and interesting and mm-hmm. two things it could do which would be less interesting is it could swing one way where Royal is racist and does horrible things and the movie presents um it's okay and it, and he's actually good and mm-hmm. his family should love him and you the viewer should love him and that would make this a really problematic movie yeah, if for all sure. of that were forgiven or mm-hmm. or glorified and the other way that it could swing is you know, showing us a, a a racist guy who does bad things and just stamping him into the dirt <laughs> and going like, you know, what a villain, what a menace to society. The, 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 the point of, you know, showing him and his sins is to punish him mm-hmm. and and we don't forgive him and you shouldn't either. Yeah. Um and uh the yeah, the the movie, the movie, the character they exist in this kind of space where it, it, the, the the your your the thing you're talking about is related to the anti-hero thing that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Which is as in addition to bringing your own experience and your reading to the movie you are also bringing what you imagine another viewer's re- reaction might be yeah and you're imagining the racist audience member who's who watches the movie and thinks oh that was funny when he when he called the black guy coltrane mm-hmm. i like this guy mm-hmm. <laughs> And the anti-hero thing that I brought up was, you know, we've talked about Rick and Morty and shouted out like Breaking Bad. And and uh, we talked about it. You know, you could apply it to Max Fisher in Rushmore. Mm -hmm. Like there there is a there is a problem. That where where these these media with anti-heroes become popular and they become popular with a subset of the audience that does not think in a critical or complicated way about the anti-hero mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They just like the anti-hero, identify with him and root for him and think that he's awesome mm-hmm. and like put a Scarface poster on their dorm room wall. <laughs> yeah. I under I recognize that issue. And I what I want is for s- widespread societal standards of media criticism to change Mm -hmm. and not for sophisticated stories in the media for adults to change Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah um like i still think it's fucked up owen wilson shows up with like that paint on his face sure (laughs) yeah there there are some there are some yes Absolutely. There are some details. I would say, yes, most most primarily the details have to do with the Owen Wilson character. Yes. Where you would look at where, where yeah, uh, uh, there's, there is something, there is something left to be desired uh, in terms of the sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think my point is is that it's hard for me to see all of these things together and say, well, he was actually being quite sensitive and complicated in this one part mm-hmm. and not in this other part. And they're completely distinct because I don't think that they are, even if we can look at them individually and say right. one is better, one is done better than the other. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Totally. Let me let me just say this and and make this clear about the Owen Wilson character. Mm-hmm. the The Owen Wilson character is a, a is a joke. Like he, there's like one scene where you might feel for him like you would for a sympathetic human being, mm-hmm. and that's when he's telling Margot that he doesn't love her. Mm-hmm. And she uh, is, you know, saying she doesn't love him either. And she's not, you know, she basically doesn't care. Yeah. She was like, I never, that was never what this was. And that would be painful for him. And that's understandable. But but for the most part, there's not much of a character there. He, he exists for, he's a comedy character. Yes. He 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 exists for delivering punchlines and he's and he's basically like a, a mockery. The, I will w- say when he's describing is like I think we're introduced to him. <laughs> yeah. Except for the My- kid except for the kid version of, of this when he, he we're yeah. introduced to him with his description of old Custer. What what We all know he died. Yeah. What my, my book, book supposes maybe he didn't. Yeah. What if what if he didn't? That that's 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 a funny joke. Um so so yes, you get into yeah, you get into tricky territory here. The, the, my reading of the Owen Wilson character is that his relationship to the whole cowboys and Indians thing is a farce. And mm-hmm. it's making fun of this type of guy. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you could say, okay, when he shows up with the pain on his face, it's like that's 
you know, it's part of the farce. And, yeah. and, and, and he's supposed to be an idiot. Yes. So, so we understand, okay, the idiot is doing an idiotic thing. Mm-hmm. And the, I, I, and the flip side of that coin is I also, I understand you, you could just not write that character. Like you, you could, you could refrain from putting that character into the world the character where the the joke is how you know insensitive he is around this subject of this historically uh oppressed people mm-hmm. would it would it be better would it be worse uh a, a world w- without the character i i don't know maybe it would be a better movie w- without any of that. Yeah. And I guess I think that like, again, this is very much the tourism thing that Wes Anderson does, which is like the joke is that he's dumb and yet it's still somehow at the expense of people of color. This is, I, I would, I would classify this as, I think I already mentioned the war movie thing, or maybe I only did. I, maybe I only talked about this with Dana. Did the I talk what? about this with you on the podcast? the 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 idea the idea that that some people hold true that there's no such thing as an anti-war movie mm. because just by depicting war on film, mm-hmm. you are inherently like making entertainment out of it mm, and yes. glorifying yeah. it and putting it on a pedestal and making mm-hmm. the the fun digestible version of it yeah because even if the movie depicts war as hell mm-hmm. it's still a movie and a movie is supposed to be entertaining and and also so lisa skatolsky my philosophy professor dr lisa, lisa skatolsky um was a holocaust scholar right and she talked about how essentially no there could not be a good holocaust movie right because the Holocaust was so horrific that any representation of it in a movie would be offensive to the actual trauma that was the Holocaust. Right. There's a, And that's like the same idea. Yeah. There's a clip about this that I will put in the show notes that went a little bit viral recently. That's why I saw it in my Twitter feed. And I will just have to show it to you later because I don't, I don't remember. I can't, I can't do it justice by describing it because I don't remember who the guy is who is in the clip. But Mm -hmm. suffice to say, it's a clip from a sort of filmmakers roundtable where this one guy, I'm sorry, I don't know who he is, is speaking very intelligently about the very thing that you just said about how, you know, uh, he, he would never make a movie and no one should like Schindler's List where the audience is kept in suspense for a moment whether uh, gas or water is going to come out of the shower head. Mm-hmm. And that's making entertainment out of horrific trauma. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that doesn't sound like something that would go viral, does it? <laughs> the reason it goes viral is because when he is done uh, speaking about this, 
the uh, moderator of the roundtable says, what do you think, John? Do you think there are subjects that we shouldn't make movies about? And the John he's talking to is John Krasinski. <laughs> and Judd Apatow is sitting next to him. And Judd Apatow elbows John Krasinski and goes, yeah, what do you think about that, John? And John oh Krasinski goes, uh, perfect. And then the, cl- the clip cuts off. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, Shit. so, so the way that I was trying to tie that to the Owen Wilson character and the, the, the problematic stuff that we're talking about is you could, you could make the argument and I'm, I'm open to the, the possibility that there, there is no such thing as making an anti-racist, racist comedy character. Mm-hmm. Because in order to write that character, you have to write their racism and yes. and and show it to people for the sake of entertainment. Yeah. And that might be inherently a no-no and yeah. not, not something that we need more of. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Or at least that if that character can be written that way, it's not going to be by a white person. Sure. So are you ready for my big admission about something I didn't fully understand about this movie? Yeah, the misheard aspect. I didn't totally realize that he and Gwyneth Paltrow were having an affair. Eli Cash. Until, yeah, yeah, that Eli and Margot and were having an affair until today. Okay. I, this is what I thought. Yeah. So I thought that they had made out once uh-huh. and that this was the thing that so fucks up Richie, but that also there was a bit of a misunderstanding and that they were seeing it as being bigger than it was mm-hmm. um, because, because of these things. So the first time, so we know that I, I have great empathy for Eli Cash's character as somebody who just really wishes he was part of this family. Mm-hmm. Um, I really feel just sad for this kid that really wishes he had this big, robust family that he could be a part of. Um, and he has this aunt that takes care of him, but really clearly just wishes Ethleen was his mother. Um, and I just feel very sad for him in that regard. So when Margot first goes home and Owen Wilson is in her closet in his underwear. Mm-hmm. Like, they they don't use cell phones in this movie. So, like, in my head, he just was kind of hanging out in there because he sneaks in and out of the house when right. he's on drugs. Yeah. And then later, Royal sees him climbing out of the window. And I realized this time that the implication is supposed to be that he slept with Margot the night before. Right. But when I saw that, I just thought, oh, he's creeping out of the house again because he just sneaks in and out of the house constantly. Right. Yeah. And then there is that scene where it's like the whole every Margot's every romantic partnership and they're making out. But I never clocked it that they were having like an active affair. And then when they met on the bridge, because Margot is so apathetic to what he's saying, Mm -hmm. it didn't even seem to me that they were sleeping together. I felt like he was saying like. I'm not in love with you. And she was like, yeah, why would you say that? Well, yeah, of course. I'm not in love with you either. That right. was never a question. Yeah. 
I can totally understand how you came to that conclusion. Oh, God bless you for saying that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. There, there, there are certain, yeah. Like the, the, the way that I was just talking about, like, you know, you, you, br- you bring yourself to the movie, you bring your own interpretation, you, you, the movie doesn't necessarily have to connect all the dots for you in a very specifically, you know, in your face outlined mm-hmm. way. The example from Rushmore that I wanted to bring up that we didn't talk about last week is that Max lies about his father saying that he's a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, we, we, the audience, hear that lie before we've ever met Max's father. Yes. And so we don't know it's a lie mm-hmm. until we meet Max's father and yes. see that he's a barber. And later, when Max is sort of growing up and we see him, you know, mending fences... He introduces his father to the other people in his life and and makes it clear that his father is a barber. At no point does anyone go, Max, you lied about your father being a neurosurgeon, right? Yeah. Like it I guess what I I guess one way of saying what I'm trying to say is that if you were watching the movie and you weren't paying attention. Like you mm-hmm. were looking at your phone and just half watching the movie, you you probably you probably wouldn't make the connection. The the because, one because connection that the one note that they do that does acknowledge it was I think Luke Wilson's character says, "Oh, I thought you were a neurosurgeon." Yeah, or something like that. Uh, right. It, yeah, and the, he says, he says, "Oh, people get that confused all the time." Right. Yes, that's true. There is that funny joke about that near near the very end. Um, yeah, I just invoked that as a, as a way to give an example of what I think I see going on, which is that like um, there there are there are elements in the movie, and I guess you can say that they're fair in this movie is one of them, mm-hmm. where um, it's all there. But you, but you have to, in an active way, sort of pay attention. It gets to buried understand under the it. many other plot lines, right? Because yeah. they don't, re- they don't explicitly come out and say it. Mm-hmm. It's it is, it's very much in plain sight, but it's not said in like an expository way. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of exposition, there's just you know, scenes, there's just, there's just behavior. Instead of exposition, there's behavior from which you make inferences. Yeah. Obviously there is exposition. There's literally a narrator in this movie and there's, you know, a lot of exposition about their early lives, but not, not as much about their adult lives or their lives in the present. Can I talk about two things that I think are really funny? Yes. We many times on this podcast we've invoked the phrase problematic fave. Yes. Um 
I'm going to invoke it again because I'm going to invoke it like it's a jet, like it's a get out of jail free card. That's, that's uh-huh. how, that's how, uh, happily I'm going to use this term just to, yeah. just to put a big bandaid over the open wound of, you know, uh, lining up how much I enjoyed this movie and the way that you've characterized it in the past, you know, 45 minutes. Um, it's a problematic fave for me. Uh, and the, 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 we, we've talked about favorite shots and the shot that I wanted to call out in this movie is in the scene where Henry Sherman confronts the whole family with the truth that Royal is lying. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. And there's a period where they, they just have to wait for everyone to get into the room Yes. Um, and and while they're waiting, uh, Owen Wilson is on the TV. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Owen Wilson being a now famous author, he's being interviewed on what is clearly Charlie Rose. Uh-huh. But it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this shot where, you know, it's it it's television within the frame of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it sounds like television. It sounds as if, like, the volume is not turned up very high. Yes. And the TV is just sort of centered. It's kind of small and it's centered in the frame. But there's a shot that lingers on the show so long that the camera zooms in very slowly on the television. Mm-hmm. And this is during the in- part of the interview where the interviewer asks Owen Wilson about his first book, Wildcat. Yeah. And his answer about is is about how uh, Wildcat was written. I forget exactly what he says, but it was written in, in some kind of imagined dialect. Yes. And then he and then Owen Wilson just pauses and he's like in another world, clearly. And he <laughs> just goes, Wildcat. Wow. You said it was written in a in a kind of obsolete vernacular. Yes, a kind of obsolete vernacular. And then yes. he just starts repeating Wildcat to himself. And then yeah. that's when he gets up to leave. And he's like, this is over. Um, yeah. Owen Wilson is so funny in that moment. And yeah. also it's made so much funnier by the way that it's shot and the fact that it's on the TV and the slow zoom in. Yeah. Um, so just on like a shot level and also sort of on a comedy level, that was my favorite moment. But however, I just also want to add that there is something in this movie that is funnier than that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I just I I I wouldn't want this whole conversation to go by without mentioning how funny Dudley is. Dudley is so funny. The the running joke of Bill Murray's character's storyline that yes. in addition to his crumbling marriage, what his work is, is studying this one kid <laughs> and the book that he writes in the end, which is called Dudley's World and the yeah. image of Dudley on the cover <laughs> and the, and when they're on stage together yes. and the question it's that so they get funny. is, can the boy tell time? And they and both, both like and no. they both say no. And the yeah, way he mm, says it is like, mm. oh Lord, no. 
And like Bill Murray's face just contorts like multiple times in that like really little short scene. It's such a funny idea and it's executed in such a funny way. The idea of like, there's something so unique about this kid's (laughs) psychology and learning ability. Yeah. Um, But it's totally new. And so it, it's, it can just be whatever random thing they yeah. want it to be. It's just a, such a funny idea for a character. A character and like who has that his, like a like new Like that his disorder. hearing's so good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, am I colorblind? I'm afraid you Sorry are. Sorry to say that you are. <laughs> yeah. natural hearing. Yeah. And the cut, the cut to Dudley and, yeah, and the, so far away right yes the the joke the joke is in the visual like the yes. the joke is in the fact that the camera is so far away from Dudley that Dudley is so small in the shot and yeah. he heard what he said at a, at a at a you know low speaking volume can I tell you my problematic fave favorite scene yeah so I think my favorite shot is the one of either the one of Bill Murray angelica houston and gwyneth paltrow mm-hmm. when bill murray's outside the window or the one where um R- royal and pagoda are sitting inside of the room drinking coffee through the window right before they see eli cash sneak out right my favorite scene is hands down the whole sequence of um richie's suicide attempt yes uh, yeah i was going to mention that if you didn't I'm sure that it has problems to it. I think it's really beautifully done. Yeah. I love the use of needle in the hay. A, a, I out, love, outstanding needle drop. I love the way that it um, sort of flashes between different memories as he's doing it. Yeah. I love that he cuts his hair first. Also, I do want to mention that I said that Luke Wilson has never looked more beautiful in Bottle Rocket, and I stand by that. Um, I think that... You know how I feel about a beard. Yes. There are some people in this world that would do better without, and Luke Wilson is one of them. Interesting. I prefer long hair, no beard, Luke Wilson. It's interesting because when we watched Bottle Rocket, I said I was anticipating how he would look in Royal Tenenbaums, mm-hmm. thinking I might prefer that. And my res- my reaction to Bottle Rocket, we were more lukewarm on bottle rocket yes that was that was lukewarm (laughs) and i think this is luke hot (laughs) lukewarm son (laughs) well i thought of that a few days ago so i like the whole scene of the actual bathroom scene yes i love the cut to dudley finding him and screaming but we don't hear the scream we just see it right and I particular there's Wes Anderson always has almost always has a part in his movies that actually make me cry. Mm-hmm. And this scene where it shows everybody getting to the hospital always actually makes me cry. Mm-hmm. The like sequence of like Ethleen hearing it on the phone and then you see Chaz in the car looking out the window being concerned. Right. Um just the idea that everyone I I really am got by the idea that a family that is complicated and fighting will just fucking drop everything if something really goes wrong. Yeah. Quickly, I want to say two things that uh, the suicide attempt scene is definitely 
the most visually arresting mm-hmm. uh, uh, sequence in the movie, the way that it's so blue tinged, the yes. way that he looks right into the camera while he's mm-hmm. shaving. And th- as you said, the flashes. The other thing I want to say is that I, while I didn't cry necessarily watching the movie, the things that the thing that tugs at my heartstrings the most in this movie is in by the end where Chaz and Royal end up yes. emotionally. The, yes. the, the from from when uh, Chaz says, "I've had a rough year, Dad." To that also always makes me cry. To yeah. to when Chaz is is the only one in the ambulance when Royal mm-hmm. passes away. That yeah. that tugs at my heartstrings very hard, and and just also really quick about Ben Stiller's character, which I feel like we haven't talked about too too much. Mm. Something that I love about his character, and I think what makes his character so successful, is that I feel like all of the rage that he has is completely justified. Yeah, and I feel like Ben Stiller is sort of acting like Ben Stiller, but within the context of the movie, it's like. He's he's not acting like himself, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. it makes more sense to me that he's so Ben Stillery for the most part, because it's very clear that this is not how this character has always acted. Right. And because like you they this is another thing that's like there, but they don't explicitly say it. Mm-hmm. He's not no when the movie starts, Royal hasn't talked to anyone in his family for three years. And Chaz's wife died a year ago which means that chaz's wife died and somehow his father heard about it and didn't call right um and it's clear that all he wants the whole movie is for him to acknowledge that somebody that he loved very dearly died right and that he had to do it by himself because with he didn't have a father there to to be there for him yeah and so for him at the end to be able to get to a point where he not only that he feels comfortable saying that to Royal and then Royal is able to acknowledge him in a way that feels good to him. Right. I felt like was the real strength of that character in particular. Yeah. And not only does Chaz get that reconciliation with Royal, but also mm-hmm. just before that, he gets like a parallel acknowledgement from his new stepfather. Yes. Where Henry Sherman yes. says he's a widower <laughs> and Chaz in al- in almost the same way, but obviously not for the same reason, but almost yeah. the same way that Max says to Miss Cross, we both have dead people in our families. Yes. Which is stating the obvious. Yes. Chaz says, I'm a widower too. And Henry Sherman says, I know you are, Chaz. But he <laughs> but he doesn't it, the way I just said it sounded sarcastic. He says yes. it in a very comforting, like he says it like sympathetic I see you way. too. Yes, exactly. Like yeah, it's it's acknowledgement in a in a meaningful way. Okay, just also real quick, I wanna say, because we talked about the Wilson brothers and I talked about how in Bottle Rocket, I thought it was a problem that they are playing friends and two people who are not related to each other, yeah. Despite who they are in real life, I just want to. It totally works here. That's what I was going to say. I just want to. Yes. I just want to make it clear: it's so not a problem in this movie. This movie is impeccably cast, and that includes casting Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson as as uh, childhood Non-brothers. childhood friends who are not brothers. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, I agree. Yeah. I wanted to really quick say about the needle drop. I know I talked a lot of shit on Margot Tenenbaum earlier. Hmm. Um, I feel like clearly the most famous needle drop is that um, the slow motion one when Margot sees Richie for the first time when she yeah. picks him up. These days. That one I think is maybe that might be the most famous scene in the whole movie. Yeah, probably. And if you're watching like an Oscars montage of like a bunch of clips from different movies, yeah, that's probably what would make it in. I have three favorite needle drops, but one is sort of double dipping, which is that Christmas time is here plays twice for Margot. Yep. And both of those needle drops are just perfect. We talked about Charlie Brown last week. Yes, and then. The Judy is a punk for the Margot history montage yeah. is also just mm, perfect. Yeah. We already shouted out Needle in the Hay as an outstanding needle drop. That's the song that in my real life I would listen to the most. And so that stands out the most to me. However, yeah. I also want to shout out, I'm very partial to when uh, me and Julio down by the schoolyard yes. plays yes. on the uh uh, Royal and the grandkids uh, montage. I do have one more note, which is I have decided that the entire Royal pretending that he's sick scheme is a caper, which brings our caper ah, count to five. Thank you very much. And by the way, first dead dog. So first chalk dead one dog up on the dead dog tally that I assume mm-hmm. you'll be taking throughout the season. Yep. Dead dog count. Thank you for bringing it back to capers. And also just to bring it back to something, uh, you you said that you would be ranking these movies as we go. Yes. So before we finish, I just want to ask, what where where is what what's your ranking so far? So right now, as much as I am very critical of how race is in this movie, this is number one. Okay. Rushmore's number two. Bottle Rocket's number three. That, selfishly, that makes me feel a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, again, you know, again, it's a problematic fave. And I think that we can like things and also know that there are things that they could have done better. Right. Be critical of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was was thinking to myself, I enjoyed watching this movie so much. It is like neck and neck with how much I enjoyed Rushmore. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of going to be uh, oscillating uh, for, yes. the, for the next several weeks between, yeah, how I, how I rank them. But I think I'm giving the, the slight edge to, to this movie right now. This movie has the aesthetic push that Rushmore, I felt, was lacking. Yeah. And that's why it wins out for me. Yeah, I think it wins out for me mostly because of the... Uh, sadness of the characters and the uh-huh. sympathy that I feel for them. Mm-hmm. Rushmore is a better comedy. Yeah, that's fair. But mm-hmm. Royal Tenenbaums is like a better uh, story. Yeah, I would. Yeah, that makes in sense. In terms yes. of the um, uh, range of emotions that I feel mm-hmm. watching it. Oh, which one one final final note, which is the whole scene where Ben Stiller where where Chaz is asking Richie about why he tried to kill himself mm-hmm. makes me laugh so much. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote a suicide note. Can I read it? No. Well, can you summarize it? Was it sad? Mm-hmm. Of course it was sad. It was a suicide yeah. note. 
There's a lot of funny dialogue in these movies. Yeah. I feel like he's underrated as like a joke writer. Yes, I think so too. But you know, I'm sort of fixated on that. Yeah. I mean, you, I, I mean, the thing I like, and we'll talk about this a lot next week. The thing I like about Life Aquatic is that it's so funny. As I said before, I have, I think, the worst memory for Life Aquatic. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to watching it this week. It'll, in some ways, feel like it's the first time. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, maybe things will come back to me and it'll be more familiar than I expect. I plan to be directly quoting it for most of the episode. <laughs> Great. I can't wait. <laughs> Love you, Will. Good night. Love See you, you next too. week. Bye-bye. Will is on Twitter and Letterboxd at youngestofone, and his website is williamhoffacker.com. You can find Liz at exclamate on Instagram, at exclamate underscore on Twitter, or on her website, elizabethdeannamorrislakes.com. Our website is smugbuds.com, and the podcast is at smugbuds on Twitter and Instagram.